Welcome to the Mid-Atlantic Championship Podcast, the podcast that travels back in time to review classic episodes of Jim Crockett Promotions' Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling as it appears on the NBC Universal streaming service Peacock, as well as internationally on the WWE Network. My name is Mike Sempervivi. The Mid-Atlantic Championship Podcast has social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just search at Mid-Atlantic Pod and look for the logo. We're also available on YouTube as well, youtube.com slash midatlanticpod, where you can find podcasts and other content exclusive to the page. Please subscribe, watch, and like the videos. It would be doing us a great service. There's a Patreon as well, filled with extras, which you can find at patreon.com slash midatlanticpodcast. Starting at $5, Patreon members not only get early access to all of our audio, they get exclusive extras, such as enhanced transcripts, filled with details and pictures that are transferable to the spoken word. Long-form written stories, photos, videos, plus unique audio, including some bonus clips that go hand-in-hand with today's episode. This show, Mid-Atlantic Championship Podcast number 58, is going to be a pretty big departure from our traditional fare. In fact, it's even somewhat of a departure from the special editions that we've brought you in the past. With this week's Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling not available on WWE Network, nor is an old VHS tape readily available, I decided to use today's show to bring a little of what Patreon members of the Mid-Atlantic Championship podcast receive. Today's extended edition is going to take you across the entire professional wrestling landscape to shine a light on this crucial tipping point in the history of American pro wrestling. On March 5, 1983, Cable, satellite, and over-the-air UHF television programming was rapidly expanding its reach. As a result, the reach of the wrestling promotions that aired on them did too. The National Wrestling Alliance was crumbling, even if some of its members were oblivious. And the World Wrestling Federation's new owner, Vince McMahon Jr., is a month away from landing the first supersonic strike that ended up setting the stage for the Wrestling War of 84. And again, as I mentioned, there's a longer, much more in-depth multimedia version of the copy that I'm reading right now up at patreon.com slash midatlanticpodcast. As March 5th, 1983 arrived, the National Wrestling Alliance, which three decades earlier in 1954 had boasted 39 members, was down to only around 20 members, few of them self-sustainable, and atrophying quickly. After longtime NWA president Sam Mushnick's retirement show took place in St. Louis, On January 1, 1982, the fall of the Alliance would be a precipitous one. The past three years had seen the promotional destruction of Roy Shire in Northern California, Mike LaBelle in Southern California, Mike London in New Mexico, Jack Mulligan and Dick Murdoch by way of the Funks in West Texas and Colorado, the Sheik in Michigan and Ohio, Nick Goulas in Tennessee and Alabama, and Leroy McGurk in the West-South-Central portion of the country. Many others were being hooked up to life support, even if they had no idea that was the case. But what they did know for sure was that satellite and cable television was rapidly changing the dynamics of the entire business. On December 17, 1976, WTCG-TV Channel 17 in Atlanta was beamed onto the SATCOM-1 satellite, shortly thereafter becoming Superstation WTBS. Ramifications to pro wrestling were swift as Georgia Championship Wrestling quickly became the number one show on the burgeoning platform, Viewed as a delicious dessert by wrestling fans who were already satisfied with their own hometown product, several hours of Georgia Championship Wrestling was a nightmare for those whose main ability to promote revolved around them being the only game in town. By 1980, Georgia Championship Wrestling was running shows in Michigan, Ohio, West Virginia, and the final nails were put into the coffin of the Sheik. Between January 1981 and May 1982, Jim Crockett Promotions had also planted its flag in Cincinnati, providing a stop-off for those who were often on their way to work JCP-promoted shows for the Tunney family in Toronto. Often with a mix of Georgia talent, Mid-Atlantic's roster would work the Queen City, that is, until June of 1982. If you've listened to these podcasts in order, you would know about the very unique relationship Jim Crockett Promotions in the Atlanta-based office had, which included, beginning in October of 1981, a decree that Ole Anderson would book both territories simultaneously. I will note he had help, including Gene Anderson and Johnny Weaver in the Carolinas, and Bob Armstrong and Ronnie West in Georgia. As we close in upon the final conflict in Greensboro, I'll also remind you that it was Ole Anderson, along with partner Stan Hansen, 
who walked out of JCP with physical possession of the NWA World Tag Team title belts in June of 1982, ushering in the era of Dory Funk Jr. to the Carolinas and Virginia. The departure, which came during the midst of a convoluted tournament to crown new NWA World Tag Team champions, which was the focal point of Mid-Atlantic's television throughout the first half of 1982. Anderson left to concentrate on Georgia, and cable-wired Mid-Atlantic viewers would watch Anderson and Hanson be declared the new NWA World Tag Team Champions as a result of Wahoo McDaniel and Don Morocco forfeiting. Ole would return the belts on August 22nd, which would eventually allow Sergeant Slaughter and Don Kernoodle to be announced as champions in late September, leading to the feud between Ricky Steamboat and Jay Youngblood. As far as running Cincinnati again... Crockett wouldn't do so until April of 1985, which is a story for another day. In the decade since bringing in George Scott to help recycle the territory in 1973, Mid-Atlantic truly had become the Cadillac of wrestling territories. The company's path to March 12, 1983 was significant, as it would help set the environment which led to Starcade 83 airing on closed circuit later in the year. But even if Mid-Atlantic was safe for now, other promotions were not. As we stand on March 5, 1983, it wasn't Georgia Championship Wrestling by way of WTBS that was engulfing the landscape anymore. Three months earlier, on December 5, 1982, Joe Blanchard's San Antonio-based Southwest Championship Wrestling began airing nationally Sunday mornings on the USA Network. At this point in 1983, things were still bullish for Blanchard, as the action on the screen was solid. But irreparable cracks were already dogging his foundation. In 1978, Blanchard had an acrimonious split with Fritz von Erich's Southwest Sports, the company name under which World Class operated its business as, and Blanchard formed Southwest Championship Wrestling. Initially booked by Wahoo McDaniel between 1978 and 1982, the rough-and-tumble territory would be buoyed by McDaniel, Tully Blanchard, Johnny Valentine managing Dale Valentine, better known to most as Buddy Roberts, Dick Slater, Manny Fernandez, Ivan Putsky, Gino Hernandez, Chavo Guerrero, Al Madrill, and Ricky Romero. You have appearances and barnstorms from top stars such as Bruiser Brody, Stan Hansen, The Funks, Abdullah the Butcher, Dick Murdoch, The Mongolian Stomper, Nick Bockwinkle, Harley Race, and even Mid-Atlantic talent such as Ricky Steamboat, and then United States Kingpin Ric Flair. Here's a clip of Flair appearing on Southwest Television from 1977, which appears on the mighty website midatlanticgateway.com as part of a series on the connection between Jim Crockett Promotions and the state of Texas. Great corner from Minneapolis, Minnesota, coming in at 250 pounds, the U.S. heavyweight champion, the nature boy, Rick Flair! Flair! Oh, sports fans, this is Steve Stack at ringside, right in the heart of Texas, and I have here with me one of the greatest Texans, former world champion, Terry Funk, and Terry, look at the nature boy. Boy, Steve, I'm looking at Nature Boy, but I'm also looking at his opponent here on Championship Wrestling today, and that's Gary Starr. Gary Starr was named as the Young Wrestler of the Year, Texas's Young Wrestler of the Year, and there's a lot of fine competition on that, and he's going up against Ric Flair today. I'll tell you. Hold up. Mr. Flair. Ric Flair. Doug. A lot of people think I'm all talk, but here I am, the U.S. champion, and I love to show off. I love to show everybody why they call me the greatest from coast to coast. So I think it's only right that the former world heavyweight champion have both eyes on me all the time, baby, because I'm telling you and everybody in all of Texas, all these funky fans, whew, that I'm the greatest of all time, forever and ever. And that goes for you or your brother, you understand? Whew. Well, one thing about it, you don't have to worry about patting Rick Flair on the back. He does enough patting himself on the back. Well, he's one, of, he's one of the top contenders in professional wrestling today in the NWA. Of course, keeping with the underlying theme of today's show, television would ultimately play a part in things, as in syndication, Mid-Atlantic was not only being seen in South Texas, but also airing in Von Erich's Dallas market. From the same Mid-Atlantic Gateway story, we hear a salute to Austin, Texas. The best in professional wrestling, Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling, number one throughout the world. And right here, let's take a moment, David, to welcome to Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling, KTVV and all of their many friends and viewers. 
in Austin, Texas. We're mighty glad and happy to have them on our Mid-Atlantic Wrestling Network. Welcome to Lone Star State. Joe Blanchard hadn't been the only Texas promoter to split with the Dallas office. Houston promoter Paul Bosch completely split with Fritz Von Erich and the National Wrestling Alliance after NWA world champion Harley Race and no-show to title defense against Tony Atlas on April 17, 1981. It was the second time Race had no-showed, the first being in May of 1977. On that occasion, it opened the door for AWA champion Nick Bockwinkle to benefit as he bought into the office. When that happened, Bosch's relationship with Wahoo McDaniel, a classic opponent for Bockwinkle, made the loose pack between San Antonio and Houston an even firmer union. Until it wasn't. When they got to the USA Network in December 1982, Southwest had a solid roster of names, like Tully Blanchard, Adrian Adonis, Bob Sweetan, Scott Casey, Bobby Jaggers, Eric Embry, Ricky Morton and Ken Lucas, and the Grapplers with manager Don Carson. That could only keep them above water, though, for so long, as the financial and creative wheels were coming off. In November of 1982, the relationship between Blanchard and Bosch came to an unceremonious end. The split with the Houston office would become catastrophic for Southwest. Bosch inked a deal with Bill Watts' Mid-South, which brought their highly popular roster of wrestlers to viewers of Bosch's Saturday night 90-minute television show, which broadcast over Houston's KHTV Channel 39, which was another widely distributed independent UHF channel at the time. This made attempting to promote against Bosch in the city disastrous, but Blanchard would attempt it anyway, against a Bosch roster which now boasted regulars Gino Hernandez, Nick Bockwinkle, Tony Atlas and Tiger Conway Jr. aligned with the Junkyard Dog, Mr. Wrestling 2, Ted DiBiase, Hacksaw Duggan, Matt Bourne, Mr. Olympia, Chavo Guerrero, Kamala, and Kendo Nagasaki. Later in 1983, Southwest would attempt what so many others would also do throughout the year, take a trip to the state of Ohio to see if the attention they received via cable would result in attention at the box office. Interestingly enough, the same USA Cable Network that was airing the often bloody and out-of-control Southwest Championship Wrestling in March of 1983 had already been airing the much more reserved World Wrestling Federation cards every few months beginning in the spring of 1981 from the massive Capitol Center in the suburbs of Washington, D.C. From the Capitol Center in Landover, Maryland, the USA Cable Network presents World Wrestling Federation Championship Wrestling. Tonight's matches are brought to you in part by Mobile Detergent Gasoline. Mobile Detergent Gasoline for your everyday driving needs. By Toyota, who reminds you that it's a good feeling to buckle up for safety. And by Levi's Jeans, Cords, and Shirts for quality and style you can count on. Welcome everyone to the Capitol Center here in Landover, Maryland, and what an exciting night of professional wrestling we have in store for you here tonight. On June 5th, 1982, Vincent Kennedy McMahon reached an agreement to buy Capitol Sports from his father, Vincent James, and his business partners. The specifics of what the younger McMahon must have thought about Southwest, its talent, production values, or converted supermarket turned junction arena are unknown. But knowing what we do today, there was likely some disgust and the idea that he could do it better. As we stand right now in March of 1983, the WWF is airing its Madison Square Garden and Philadelphia Spectrum shows through regional outlets, the MSG Network and Prism, respectively. The WWF was also benefiting from both All-Star and Championship Wrestling being broadcast over Secaucus, New Jersey-based Superstation, W-O-R-T-V. Ah, the Superstation. Amazingly, due to the elder McMahon still being in the picture and circumstances being what they were, other than Georgia, the territory most ready to benefit from televised wrestling's national expansion was Fritz Von Erich's world-class championship wrestling out of Dallas-Fort Worth. Already boasting strong syndication, world-class also benefited from exposure on Fort Worth Superstation KTVTV-TV, Channel 11, which became the Southwest's most powerful independent. 
and outside of Chicago's WGN-TV, may have been the top indie across the Plains area in southern Midwest. If that wasn't enough, the company's other show from Dallas was carried on the burgeoning Christian Broadcasting Network, KXTX, Channel 39, which actually had a bonus built in. Not only was Channel 39 proper beginning to be carried across the southern United States on cable and satellite providers, but now CBN affiliates in different parts of the country, like Boston, were also carrying the show as well. In the ring, not only was the Freebirds Von Erich's six-man battle of good versus evil on fire, at this point in 1983, World Class was also shaking off the shackles of old Texas wrestling ghosts by bringing in fresh talent like gorgeous Jimmy Garvin and Sunshine, Iceman King Parsons, and former Olympian Yoshiaki, then known as Toru Yatsu, managed by Armand Hussein. World Class had been revolutionizing how fans watched wrestling by revolutionizing how it was produced and packaged. Fritz rode the good fortune of his sons David, Kerry, and Kevin Von Erich's skyrocketing popularity, which had only been ascending higher with the kickoff of the Von Erich's fabulous Freebirds feud on Christmas Day 1982. But something else also happened around Christmas Day 1982. During his annual jaunt to Hong Kong during the Christmas holidays, Jim Barnett was forced out of Georgia Championship Wrestling after Ole Anderson got his hands on the accounting books and accused Barnett of dipping into the profits. This caused a crucial schism in the office. Even if one excluded the many political connections Barnett had, it ended up being a short-sighted move from Anderson in almost every conceivable way. Barnett had been to that point arguably the most successful mover and shaker in wrestling history. Certainly the most knowledgeable man when he came to the television side of the business, Barnett was an incredibly savvy fountain of knowledge. And he also wasn't one to be crossed. Barnett took his 30-plus years of experience in the game, almost all of it facilitating national televised wrestling or a national touring syndicate, as well as his stake in the Georgia office, and headed to Stamford, Connecticut. Which is a story for another day, and as we sit here on March 5th, 1983, that day is only weeks away. Being in the media capital of the world and having lots of ambition, the younger McMahon wasn't going to be content watching others have the national spotlight, especially when he knew he could outclass his competition. In the case of McMahon entering the Southern California market, the LaBelles hadn't just slashed their own Achilles, but their own throats as well, leading into Hollywood Wrestling's union with the WWF. In October of 1982, LaBelle and McMahon entered into a $520,000 agreement for McMahon to take over the territory. Whereas the remnants of the once-proud Olympic wrestling were relegated to Spanish-only television, McMahon would utilize his connections with WOR-TV's parent company RKO to facilitate a meeting with KHJ-TV Channel 9 in Los Angeles. There he offered the station $2,500 a week to air WWF Championship Wrestling at 9.30 a.m. every Saturday morning, a move which left the AWA's Vern Gagne and most of the NWA members aghast. Pay for television? The old guard were used to stations paying them. As Sergeant Slaughter was going to war with Private Jim Nelson in Charlotte tonight, the WWF was making its live debut on the West Coast by running San Diego, California, in front of a reported crowd of 5,000. The next day, the new product put 3,700 fans into the Olympic Auditorium, which would be up to 5,500 for its April 23rd show. A tremendous start considering that the Global Wrestling News Service newsletter said at the time that the final show in Los Angeles, quote, under the Hollywood Wrestling Office, drew a little over 200 fans, end quote. While it wasn't apparent right away, under the younger McMahon, the WWF was beginning the process of recycling itself. WWF champion Bob Backlund was in the midst of title defenses against Morocco, Buddy Rose, superstar Billy Graham, and Ray Stevens during the first few months of the year, before those names were replaced by Ivan Koloff, George the Animal Steele, and both of the Wild Samoans. Graham and Rose would be gone within weeks, while Stevens departed in June. But the real interest of the company resided with the Intercontinental Championship. In January, the magnificent one Don Morocco had just handed Pedro Morales his first pinfall loss at Madison Square Garden in 18 years, taking the title and then going head-on into feuds with Rocky Johnson, and much more importantly, Superfly Jimmy Snuka. 
Ever since Snuka was turned on by his manager Captain Lou Albano and partner Ray Stevens in November 1982 and took on Nature Boy Buddy Rogers as his new handler, Snuka's popularity had exploded. With his incredible look and dazzling offense, Snuka seemed like the man the younger McMahon was going to build as the next Northeastern hero, with the obnoxiously entertaining Morocco as the perfect foil. But in a few months, Snuka would be involved in an infamous incident with girlfriend Nancy Argentino, leaving her dead. Bypassing the real-life aspect of that tragedy and just looking at it from a wrestling perspective, the writing was on the wall for Bob Backlund as the hero of the company once Vincent Kennedy McMahon bought it. After Snuka's legal issues and other uncomfortable actions came to light, here's likely the point when McMahon realized that securing his next option was essential. The boom of syndication-heavy UHF stations and the rapid expansion of cable and satellite technology had already completely changed the game, and everyone besides Vince was playing catch-up. No one would learn that lesson harder than Vern Gagne, who as of March 5, 1983, felt pretty invincible. Watching the NWA promoters smash into each other suited Gagne just fine. In late 1980, smelling blood in the water, Gagne moved his television into the Bay Area, and began the process of making tour stops. Quickly, Oakland, San Francisco, Sacramento, Salt Lake City, and Las Vegas were assimilated into an already expansive territory, which included the states of Minnesota, Wisconsin, and the Dakotas, plus Denver, Omaha, Winnipeg, and Chicago. Ganya also held a stake in the post-Sam Mushnick office of the St. Louis Wrestling Club, alongside Bob Geigel, Pat O'Connor, and Harley Race. Vern was riding high with a very safe hand. Bachwinkle was also recognized as the world champion in Memphis and Houston, and his manager Bobby the Brain Heenan's reputation as the best second to ever live was being galvanized with every new fan that saw his promos and work at ringside on new television affiliates or via tape trading. Change was not a concept Vern Gagne embraced. The high flyers of Greg Gagne and Jim Brunzel were perennial tag team champions, and Vern relied heavily on still popular but rapidly aging veterans such as himself, Mad Dog Vashon, The Crusher, Wahoo McDaniel, Blackjack Lanza, and Baron Von Raschke. Things weren't all bad, though. The ascending Rick Martell had just departed back to Montreal after an extremely good run, which saw his wrestling skills impress, although fan response to him could times be tepid. No matter, stories about Martell would be seen in AWA programs, newsletters, and from friends in mainstream media. In a case where fan response was anything but tepid, the AWA was also the home of arguably professional wrestling's biggest babyface, Hulk Hogan. The breakout star of the 1982 film Rocky III, Hogan was feuding with Jesse the Body Ventura, attempting at the time to go by the moniker of Mr. V. The matches were getting incredible reactions from fans doing so with a distinct lack of scientific mat work that made Ganya famous something that Ganya valued much more than unreal charisma. In Vern's mind, charisma was valuable, just like it was for Wahoo or Superstar Graham or other big draws for him. But world champions? It would come back to bite Vern Ganya the next month on Sunday, April 24th, 1983 in St. Paul, Minnesota. But that's a story for another day. On this day, March 5th, 1983, as the WWF was in SoCal, Ganya brought his troop to the Cow Palace in San Francisco, which saw a main event of Mad Dog Vashon and the High Flyers defeating Sheikh Adnan El Casey, Jerry Blackwell, and Sergeant Jacques Goulet, and a semi-main event of Hogan beating Ventura by disqualification. Also on the show, Jerry the King Lawler, who defeated John Tolos. Lawler's feud with Bachwinkle for the AWA title in Memphis during 1982 was big business, but its success was mostly isolated to Tennessee. Lawler's interviews and interactions with Gene Okerlund were unsurprisingly great. The reaction to the rest of his act didn't go quite as well during matches with Tolos, Ken Patera, and Jacques Goulet in the traditional territory, and by the end of the month, the King's appearances dried up. But it was good to be the King, because you always had Memphis, and things were really good in Memphis. The reverberations of Lawler getting hoodwinked out of the AWA world title by way of Andy Kaufman on January 10, 1983, during Lawler's rematch against Bachwinkle, were still being felt as March 5th rolled around. With Kaufman and Jimmy Hart back in cahoots, that's where Lawler's focus laid. 
to try and placate a disappointed crowd who would rather have seen Lawler as AWA world champion than another round with Kaufman, Austin Idol had come in as the international champion in February, and in a few days, Monday night, March 7th, at the Mid-South Coliseum, Lawler would defeat Austin Idol for the international title. A title that worked just about as well as superstar Billy Graham's CWA world title did in making fans forget about Lawler missing out on the AWA title in 1979. Which is to say, not much. Meanwhile, the area's most popular duo, the Fabulous Ones, were involved in a war with their complete opposites, the New Zealand Kiwi Sheepherders. Soon the Fabs wouldn't just have to deal with the Sheepherders, but Moondogs as well. Terry Taylor, who headed to Memphis after a good stint in Mid-Atlantic the year prior, had just upended Jacques Rougeau for the Southern Heavyweight title and would soon be dealing with a turning Bill Dundee. Jimmy Hart wasn't only tied up with Lawler as his man Bobby Eaton continued to war with former partner Coco Ware, who was under the persona of Sweet Brown Sugar, over the Mid-Southern Heavyweight title. Other babyfaces included Dutch Mantell, Steve Olzanowski, who would also sit in on commentary, and a young Bobby Fulton. Even without the benefit of Cable, Memphis's reputation exploded due to Jerry Lawler's exploits with Andy Kaufman in 1982 and its promo-heavy television show becoming a fast favorite of tape traders. What happened in the Tennessee Territory pretty much stayed that way as its syndication loop was large but quite reserved compared to its neighbors in Georgia and the Carolinas, and despite its proximity to the cable capital of the country at the time, the state of Ohio, they didn't have national visibility. When it came to Ron Fuller's Pensacola, Florida-based Southeastern Championship Wrestling, that's exactly how they liked it. Recoiling from publicity offered by the established national wrestling magazines, let alone pursuing national television, Southeastern was operating in something of an oasis on the Gulf Coast of Alabama and Florida, and the promotion was currently seeing its favorite son, Bob Armstrong, going through something of an identity crisis. Armstrong had grown out a mustache, started puffing on a cigar, and repackaged himself as a bad guy who was scheduled to battle Jimmy Golden for the Southeastern heavyweight title in a Texas death match this coming Monday, March 7th in Montgomery, Alabama. The Bullets' babyface son, Brad Armstrong, would return from Georgia for a short stint before he was headed south to Eddie Graham in Florida. And on today's television program, he'd get a taste of his father's new disposition. Armstrong reversed into the turnbuckles by Robert Gibson, and Gibson trying for that shoulder block, ducked out, and I believe almost hit that ring post, or maybe he did. Yeah, I he can't did see from our angles. Uh, uh, that's that same shoulder that I tore indeed, out for him in Oklahoma. That's that same shoulder. Look at him. Referee He's in pain now. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Uh, from the dressing room, bullet Bob Armstrong. Brad apparently standing back from the injured Robert Gibson as Bob is shouting at him, uh, I believe, to continue the match and take his win. What would almost be a sh Armstrong now screaming. I said, beat him, beat him. Uh, Whoa! Whoa! Oh! Well, Bob Armstrong just slapped Brad. Uh, uh, I don't even want to speculate on this kind of confrontation. But uh, to, to Brad Armstrong's credit, and let's give this young man this much credit, he is a sportsman, he is a professional athlete, and he is not intimidated by the bully tactics of some other people around here. Well, I'll tell you this. His father was trying to teach him a lesson, trying to correct him. The young man should have listened to his father. Sometimes a, a parent has to get the attention of a child. Just throw it out. Okay. Referee Jimmy McGuire rules. Don't say it, no contest. Just throw it out. Rules that this match will be thrown out. As the Fuller family was keeping their territory away from the swirling winds of change in the wrestling business, Bob Geigel was seemingly oblivious to it. After the fall of the Sheik's Detroit promotion, no wrestling television program was more stuck in a time warp than Heart of America Sports' All-Star Wrestling. Based out of Kansas City and more colloquially known as the Central States, Geigel's territory encompassed the states of Kansas, Iowa, Nebraska, and parts of Illinois and Missouri. With the retirement of Sam Mushnick at the beginning of 1982, Geigel then inherited 25% of the prestigious St. Louis office and the financial benefits which came from its Keel Auditorium shows, the most recent of which, on February 11th, was a smashing success headlined by Ric Flair against Bruiser Brody. 
If you were Geigel, things seemed to be going pretty well. But for outsiders who got a look at the Kansas City product, some couldn't tell if we were in March 1983 or March 1973. Using a mainly one-camera shoot for its television, the territory relied heavily on its right to use the touring NWA World Heavyweight Champion, which was currently Ric Flair, but was oftentimes the area's most popular star Harley race. Even with longtime office worker and announcer Larry Matisik leaving to run opposition, he had just quit after a show the week before, on February 25th, the reputation of St. Louis as the heart of the National Wrestling Alliance still held prestige among the NWA's territories and the workers who wrestled there. It was one of the reasons that Geigel could mentally downplay the effects of cable and satellite on the business around him. Sure, Satellite had brought the exciting Atlanta wrestling style and the revolutionary production of Dallas into the Plain States, but in Geigel's world, he'd be able to tap talent for tours as they came to St. Louis or rely on old friendships, believing the old rules of unity and doing business would continue as they had since the Alliance was born. Very soon, Geigel and his partners would kill the golden goose of the arch. On top of self-inflicted wounds, like Booker Pat O'Connor being very much on the downside of his run, and then being fired after going on the lam for tax evasion, Sam Mushnick officially walked away from the St. Louis Wrestling Club in January after staying on for a year in an advisor's role, where he was pretty much ignored. His departure was followed by longtime assistant and announcer Larry Matisik, and then by longtime ring announcer Mickey Gargiola. In opposition, Matisik would attempt to promote on his own using his good friend Bruiser Brody on top and utilizing talent from Joe Blanchard's Southwest, Angelo Poffo's ICW, and Bruiser's WWA. After giving his word that he would be there, Blackjack Mulligan no-showed the first card in June, forcing Brody into a handicap match against two undercard workers. As a result, Geigel's promotion was in cruise control between appearances by Harley Race, or barnstorms from Bruiser Brody. Heart of America Sports provided a meal of aged meat and hearty potatoes for its audience. And when you look at the roster, you'll see why I said aged meat and hearty potatoes. Save for 19-year-old Mark Romero, 20-something manager-turning-wrestler Gary Young, Hercules Hernandez, and Central States champion Manny Fernandez, there was almost no one in the area under 30. And once you remove the names Buzz Tyler, Mike George, and newly crowned tag team champions Masafuchi and Kim Duck, the land was barren of anyone under the age of 40. In March 1983, Roger Kirby, who was actually the Central States champion at this time in 1973, was trying to unmask the convict, former Hollywood blonde Jerry Brown, under a mask. The Central States champion was now veteran Dewey Robertson, who had unseated Fernandez, Add in such area stalwarts as Omar Atlas, Bulldog Bob Brown, Rufus R. Jones, and Ox Baker, and you could see how the slower, more methodical style and pat-handed ideology didn't export well. If Geigel was floating in his own world, Dick the Bruiser floated in his own universe, which in this case encompassed the state of Indiana. While not as aesthetically ugly as Kansas City, by March of 1983, the area had devolved into its boss's vanity project. Bruiser's longtime partner Wilbur Snyder had retired the year before, but the world's most dangerous wrestler was still dominating his city. Bruiser also still made appearances on St. Louis cards as well, sometimes getting those courtesies extended to his son Carl, who wrestled as Leroy Redbone, and his son-in-law Spike Huber, who teamed with Snyder's son-in-law Steve Regal as the Young Lions. The show itself was a slow-moving, mostly one-camera shot, with exceptionally hokey locker room style promos led at this time by personalities Bob Luce and eventually David McLean of Glow fame. Much like Geigel and Ganya, Bruiser still relied on aging special attractions like Bobo Brazil and Ox Baker to supplement an aging selection of local workers like Paul Christie, Bobby Colt, Blackie Guzman, and El Bracero. But because of the power of television, even the Bruiser took a crack at running Ohio. One attempt on April 18, 1983, drew about 100 people for a show 200 miles east of Indianapolis in Tarleton, Ohio, which is about 40 miles south of Columbus. Conversely, another star of the 1950s and 60s, Eddie Graham, still operated a top-flight territory, although it was swinging downward from its peak throughout the 1970s and early 1980s. At the top of the card, 
The Midnight Rider was still riding around after Dusty Rhodes had lost a Christmas night cage match against Kevin Sullivan due to the interference of Jake Roberts. In fact, the Rider just had to relinquish his half of the Global Tag Team Championship he won with his partner, a pre-Magnum Terry Allen, over the Kangaroos team of Bulldog Don Kent and John Heffernan. You know the situation I'm in. And when I'm in a situation like this, I know what to do. You know I can't keep this hand. But I know one thing. I'm going to give you the belt. He's going to have both belts. Because the Midnight Rider can't let him catch me. I can't let him catch me. Right here is the Global Tag Team Champion, Terry Allen. You'll notice the global designation of the tag team titles, which were created in late October 1982. That plays into Eddie Graham and Ann Gunkel's new venture into California in the Four Corners, which I'll touch on a little later. Allen was allowed to choose Scott McGee as his new partner. Barry Windham was rapidly coming into his own and shaking off any shadows that came from being Blackjack Mulligan Jr., putting on incredible performances and becoming a contender for the NWA world title after being unceremoniously fired by Ole Anderson in Georgia at the end of 1982, Roddy Piper would spend ample time in Florida in early 1983, which allowed his beating at the hands of Greg Valentine and Ric Flair to breathe for Mid-Atlantic fans. Holding a complete iron claw on the state of Florida and the islands around it, strong syndicated television across the southern states, west through Texas, a new venture that could let him lay claim to the Southwest U.S. and California, and an incredible level of respect from his peers, most notably Vincent James McMahon, who had no quarrels with Florida television airing in the New York City market on WNJU Channel 41. In February of 1983, from the outside looking in, Graham and his trusted booker and protege Dusty Rhodes could ride this wave forever. But that's a story for another day. That loops the road back around to Georgia Championship Wrestling, the territory that unintentionally started the shrinking of the pro wrestling world by being expanded to more viewers than it could believe. Ole Anderson's power play to force Jim Barnett's resignation from Georgia Wrestling Affairs would soon be raining down hell upon him, as in April the territory would be sold to Titan Sports, which turned a tumultuous time for Atlanta into a meltdown. While Northern tours for the promotion were still solid, Georgia was facing increasing competition for eyeballs in Michigan from George Cannon's Montreal group and from the WWF in Ohio. The latter was a situation that would explode into litigation over arenas in the same way it would over the battle for the company. In the process, Vince McMahon's consolidation of power would cause irreversible problems for the WWF's old string of local promoters who either went into business for themselves, like Angelo Savoldi in New England, or attempted to work with others. As an example, Gene Dargan, who promoted Pennsylvania towns such as Altoona and Johnstown, fell out with the younger McMahon and would align himself with the Georgia office. But despite more inroads into new places, on screen, Georgia was moving further and further away from the highs it had seen only a year and a half prior. Ironically, at this point, the promotion was about a year and a half into the blood feud between Tommy Rich and Buzz Sawyer, which would weave itself in and out of most everything on the show. Anderson's cost-cutting for the promotion allowed it to look past the misgivings of some like Sawyer, but when challenged with someone with more options like Roddy Piper, Ole was quick to offer the door. And as the week of March 5, 1983 rolled around, longtime viewers would begin to see one of the most stark talent turnovers of modern time. One of George's brightest lights, national champion Paul Orndorff, would soon be on his way to New Japan, returning for a few months, then departing for good in July. Butch Reed had already left, as had Brad Armstrong. Next week, the Super Destroyer Scott Irwin departed from Mid-South, and over the course of the next several weeks, gone would be the Moondogs, Ivan Koloff, Tito Santana, and the Mass Superstar. Taking their places? Well, Dick Murdoch would jump into feuding with the Iron Sheik, and last until July when he'd leave for New Japan. Paul Ellering arrived in January, and Bob Roop in February. Homer O'Dell showed up with his Mongols, the nearly 52-year-old Newton Tatry and Gene Lewis, the later leaving within weeks to perform the same role for Skandar Akbar in Dallas. 
Brian Blair would last until June before leaving for New Japan and reappearing elsewhere. Tony Atlas also arrived in March. He made it until May. But perhaps the most infamous of the new arrivals came in the form of killer Tim Brooks and Larry Zabisco. Brooks was in from Dallas while Zabisco had been flying under the radar since his feud with Bruno Sammartino had blown off in New York. Sammartino was in litigation with the WWF at the time and aided both Dominic DiNucci and Killer Kowalski's wrestling schools in running independent shows and television tapings throughout the Northeast. Known as both the International Wrestling Federation and Bedlam from Boston, these shows would feature Bruno's son David Sammartino, who was feuding with Zabisco. So Zabisco's arrival in Georgia after a year under the radar got people's attention. Soon enough, what would also get everyone's attention, in a less positive way, would be the angle in which Zabisco proclaims he's offered Killer Brooks $25,000 to beat Orndorff for him and hand over the national title. The Iron Sheik would last until August, taking with him the easy heat that the area babyfaces had relied on. Where would Sheik end up after all the national television exposure he had gotten during World Championship Wrestling on WTBS? The same place Orndorff, Santana, Atlas, Koloff, Superstar, and Blair did. New York. But that's a story for another day. Before we head back up I-95 and home to the Carolinas, I would be remiss if I didn't touch on some of the other territories. Earlier I noted the soon-to-be disastrous attempt by Championship Wrestling from Florida's Eddie Graham and Ann Gunkel to run an NWA-affiliated booking office that would service all of the areas left behind when the Alliance fell west of Dallas and south of Oregon. Called global wrestling at this point, the futility of the venture wasn't quite clear yet. Graham did grab television in several cities, beginning in Phoenix, hosted by Gordon Soley, Buddy Colt, and occasionally Roddy Piper. A global heavyweight championship tournament was announced for May, but ultimately went unfulfilled. At this point in the year, Mike Graham was wrestling for Southwest and the AWA throughout the western states, coinciding with these promotional efforts. The PAFO's international championship wrestling was still functioning, and it still had a string of syndication from Springfield, Illinois to Beckley, West Virginia, although the promotion was crashing fast. As you may have noticed during the show, all of its notable names were being assimilated back into more traditional areas. The biggest jewel in their crown was still there, Macho Man Randy Savage, and he'd be welcomed on to Larry Matisic's St. Louis cards, as well as being wooed to differing degrees by Joe Blanchard, Ole Anderson, and Bill Watts. At this point, ICW shows were being led by Savage and fellow heels Rip Rogers with Brenda Britton, Doug Vines, Paul Christie with Miss Bunny Love, Radimus, a painted-up Bill Howard, and the original Great Kabuki, spelled K-A-B-O-O-K-I, and played by the 60-year-old veteran Ray Urbano, with Lanny Poffo, George Weinergroff, Mike Doggendorf, and fabulous Danny Fargo heading the baby faces. Later in the year, desperation would make for strange bedfellows, as the Poffos would hook up with Nick and George Goulas, who were attempting to continue promoting wrestling in the area between Nashville and Chattanooga, Tennessee with their local Universal Wrestling Association television show, which they would also call Universal Championship Wrestling. Hosted originally by Michael St. John and later George Goulas and area manager Ken Hawk, the promotion's most notable workers were longtime Goulas associates like Tojo Yamamoto, Herbert Higgy and his son Tommy, the bounty hunter David Novak and Dale Mann, who also helped to provide a funnel of self-trained talent to both Goulas and the Poffos. Ginger the Wrestling Bear, wrangled by trainer Richard Walker, got a lot of work when you look at the state of Kentucky and head southwest into the Ozark region, as did Tom Boogaloo Shaft, although the booking of the two are unrelated. In said Ozark region, Bill Watts had consolidated control over Mississippi, Louisiana, Arkansas, Oklahoma, and Far East Texas under the banner of Mid-South Sports, but that didn't mean an old friend wasn't interested in doing his own thing. In April of 1983, Danny Hodge, whose career was ended due to a broken neck suffered in a 1976 car accident, decided to make a miraculous comeback at the age of 50, along with veteran names like original Kabuki Ray Urbano, Radimus, Mike Dupree, Ron McFarland, Outlaw Don Bass, and Sir Joseph Cagle. Hodge also used a troop of his own trainees to run small towns in familiar locales such as Oklahoma City, Tulsa, and Fort Smith. Hodge would also make appearances for Southwest Championship Wrestling, often against Eric Embry, as Joe Blanchard desperately attempted to draw houses in traditional world class 
and Mid-South strongholds. Walk into any portion of the Bluegrass State in early 1983, and you're bound to trip over an outlaw or indie. But in a state where the Poffos were still waging war with Jerry Jarrett, both shows needed talent to be created, especially when both TV shows had a lot going on all the time. In most cases, there was always some sort of plug between local outlaws and the establishment. But in Kentucky and Tennessee, those relationships seemed to be the most cordial. As long as it wasn't a town of consequence, Jerry Jarrett often looked the other way as veteran wrestlers ran local shows using their trainees and often giving a payday to an older worker past their primes. As long as it wasn't a town of consequence, Jerry Jarrett often looked the other way as veteran wrestlers ran local shows using their trainees and often giving a payday to an older worker past their prime. In some cases, as with Jarrett referee Paul Morton, who ran self-promoted shows in cities like Columbia and Spring Hill, Tennessee, talent from Memphis Television would occasionally appear, either working as a local or against whomever they're feuding with on TV. Starting his career in the late 1960s, Dale TNT Mann was based out of Georgetown, Kentucky, and ran shows under the banner of Mid-Continental Wrestling Association. Also a trainer, Mann's most notable expert was working for him in March of 1983, Big Jim Morris. Over time, Morris would morph into Harley Davidson, then into the man simply known as Hillbilly Jim. At this time, shows were populated by Morris, Shaft, who was touted as the 1982 Tough Man World's Contest winner, Whipper Billy Watson Jr., a.k.a. Flying Phil Watson, area athletic legend Chuck Connors, the fabulous Danny Fargo, the Toledo Blondes team of Jim and John Malone, and the Southern Sensations team of Billy Joe Travis and Michael Ray, among others. Two hours east of Georgetown, Kentucky, in Ashland, longtime tag team partners Rip Collins and Chuck Conley would also run area shows and train prospective workers. Along with their manager named Cousin Alfred, Collins and Conley achieved national success in the 1960s from Madison Square Garden to Hollywood, California, as Willie and Slim, the original incarnation of the Scufflin' Hillbillies. Don Pruitt ran shows for years in towns like Owensboro and Bowling Green, Kentucky. Bob Hamby, a.k.a. Irish Pat Clancy, ran areas like Hellier, Kentucky, on the border of Virginia and Kentucky, while other names like Larry Bolin, Cliff Lilly, and Dale Starr also knocked around the state as well. Visibility-wise, Portland suffered from being 3,000 miles away from the hub of wrestling magazines, New York City and much like Kansas City, was mostly a one-camera shoot, but its reputation as a home to help build future talent, and Don Owens standing as an honorable member of the NWA, kept its reputation high above par. One of the young talents born from the region was Billy Jack, who in March of 1983 was less than a year into his rookie campaign. The weekend of March 5, 1983 would be Chris Adams' last in the area. He defeated J.J. Dillon at the sports arena in Portland, going on tour with New Japan before entering world class in April. Quite the odd matchup on paper, it coincided with Dylan landing back in the States after a tour with All Japan. Buddy Rose would also re-enter the Northwest from the WWF and go right back to being the reviled figure he was before. He had good company, as the Crippler Rip Oliver's clan of himself, the Assassin, known better to listeners of this podcast as David Patterson, and Sheikh Abdullah Ali Hassan were the top unit. Further north, in Vancouver, Al Tomko, well into his 50s, was still getting into the ring, although his longtime rival and slash partner Dean Ho was getting ready to wrap up his career. The territory used longtime veterans the mighty Igor Musmorowski, Igor Volkov, Jerry Morrow, and Chris Colt, with special appearances from Bulldog Bob Brown. In Calgary, Stu Hart's venerable stampede promotion rolled on with sons Bruce, Brett, and Keith leading the way. The kingpin of the territory was mid-heavyweight champion the Dynamite Kid, who along with Davey Boy Smith, Jim Neidhart, and Mr. Hito had their hands full with a heavy roster of heavies. A soon-arriving Hercules Ayala would further bolster a heel side, which included North American heavyweight champion Leo Burke, the great Gama, honky-tonk Wayne Ferris, and Dr. D. David Schultz. Bad News Allen would return to the promotion in May. On March 11th, Neidhart and Hito would defeat the Masters of Disasters, Kerry Brown and Duke Myers for the company's international tag team title. The new champions would immediately face the challenges of Mike Miller and the Cuban Assassin, as well as Norman Frederick Charles III and Athel Foley. Further west, out in the Pacific Ocean, 
The Leah Maivia-led NWA Polynesia was the ultimate stop for those coming and going on tours of Japan or North America. In March 1983, regulars on the island consisted of Superfly Tui, Lars Anderson, Ripper Collins, and the team of Farmer Boy Ippo and Leroy Brown, who is not the same Leroy Brown currently working in Florida. There was a team of Mongolians named Tsar and Gore, who were also known as Curtis Kumala and Barry Darso. Yes, that Barry Darso. King Curtis, Rocky Johnson, and Siviafi came in whenever possible, as did familiar faces Mark Lewin, Steve Ricard, and Tor Kamada. Speaking of Ricard, his season of wrestling in New Zealand had just kicked off with Ric Flair in Auckland to defend the NWA world title against Lewin. Western North Carolina outlaw Rick Link was also here, as well as the not-very-Mongolian Mongolians. Ricard would face promotional battles too, one of which at this time came from Ernie Pinch's South Pacific Wrestling Association, which operated from the 1960s into the mid-1980s. Meanwhile, back in North America and going all the way east, Montreal was being promoted by international wrestling and its owners, Frank Valois, Gino Brito, and Dino Bravo. Andre the Giant would still make the occasional appearance, although he had relinquished his stake in the company. Pat Patterson would make his share of shows as well. But the company's main bread and butter was its relationship with the AWA, which was boosted by the fact that Quebec native Rick Martel was ascending quickly within the ranks of Vern Gagne. The deal allowed for AWA talent such as local legend Maurice Mad Dog Vachon, Nick Bockwinkle, Billy Robinson, and Mr. Saito to make appearances that were being beamed across Quebec over the French-language television station TVA. Coming up on Monday, March 7, 1983, international champion Billy Robinson and Dino Brito would square off for Robinson's championship. The international tag team champions at the time were Gino Brito and Tony Parisi. Sadly, on May 25, 1983, the legendary Johnny Rougeau would pass away at the age of 53, making Rougeau the second iconic Canadian wrestling figure to pass away in 15 days as Toronto promoter and Crockett Promotions partner in the city, Frank Tunney, had passed away in Hong Kong on May 10th while on vacation. We'll have more on Tunney's passing and its ramifications in upcoming editions of the podcast. Based out of Windsor, Ontario in 1982, George Crybaby Cannon inked a deal with the Montreal office to begin airing its tapes while he provided voiceovers and hosted local promos. Operating off its flagship of CFCF-TV, Cannon beat Georgia Championship Wrestling to the punch when he came to running the Motor City. On March 19th, Cannon would run a show at Joe Louis Arena, which featured Billy Robinson against Bobo Brazil in the main event in a six-man tag team match with Dino Bravo, Gino Brito, and Dominic DiNucci against Gillis the Fish Poisson, Hangman Neil Guay, and Johnny Valiant with Eddie Creechman. By the way, the name of Cannon's television program? Superstars of Wrestling. Running during the summertime months, Emile Dupree's Atlantic Grand Prix Wrestling in the Maritimes had been operating since 1977. Running New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, and Prince Edward Island, Dupree's quiet promotion would see a hefty amount of familiar talent pass through its doors. One of them was Jay Youngblood, who would make an appearance here in the next couple of months, but that's another story you'll have to stay tuned for. The most prolific local names were Big Steven Petipas, who would wrestle as a heel under the name Sheik Ali in Quebec under the tutelage of Eddie Creechman, and New Brunswick resident Killer Carl Krupp, who dominated the company's European Championship. Those who worked regularly in Montreal would pass in and out, as would names familiar to Toronto's Maple Leaf wrestling program, like the Kay family of Rudy and Terry Kay and Leo Burke, Rocky De La Serra, Goldie Rogers, Hubert Gallant, and no-class Bobby Bass, who occasionally refined himself as manager Robert Joseph Bass III. Oh, and by the way, even though Jim Crockett Promotions hadn't had any real direct threat of competition since the Johnny Powers-promoted International Wrestling Association had fizzled out in early 1977, that didn't mean that no one else wanted to have their fun in the wrestling business. In Lexington, North Carolina, which is about 35 miles or so southwest of Greensboro, veteran Johnny Hunter trained wrestlers and ran shows under the banner of the Eastern Wrestling Association. Believed to be a product of East Tennessee legends Ron and Don Green, Hunter would also rent out his ring for other promotions to use under other acronyms. 
Names like Avalanche Buzz Tyler, Steve Muslin, George South, Gene Ligon, Ron Rossi, Mike Simeone, Don Gilbert, and Rick Benfield would begin their careers intermingling with other wrestlers from the region in the same predicament like Buddy Landell alongside a few vets who worked for the NWA or IWA. IWA alumnus Big Ed Fury regularly worked, as did 60-year-old local legend Brute Bernard, who was often designated as the area's brass knuckles champion while looking like a relic from a different era. Making the occasional appearance to supplement things were older attractions such as the Mighty Igor and Benny Maguire, who was half of the famous heavy-set twin brother team. The fabulous Mula and her Columbia, South Carolina-based camp of women made regular appearances too, with a Southern Women's Championship being recognized, which in March of 1983 was held by Donna Christianello. Speaking of the Palmetto State, for many people who lived through Mulkey Mania, Anderson, South Carolina's Randy and Bill Mulkey are its most notable exports, at least west of Interstate 85. But in reality, crusher George Gray gave the biggest boost to the area in the early 1980s when the Poffo's ICW came calling for outlaws to bolster their ranks. Becoming Crusher Bloomfield and later the one-man gang, Gray would come on board as well as other trainees of local worker promoter Chief Jay Eagle, like Rattlesnake Brooks and Ricky Starr. Another outlaw of the time, and far less revered, was promoter Charlie Babb, who during this time of 1983 was popping up in towns like Greenwood, Union, and Campobello, all about 20 to 30 miles outside of Crockett's Spartanburg stronghold. Babb, who had worked for Johnny Powers' IWA in the 70s when it settled in Winston-Salem, had a show airing on Greenville, South Carolina-based Christian television station WGGS-TV under the banner of the AWF. He used old IWA tapes to get started and brought in Dick the Bulldog Brower for his television taping. Babb would close each show telling kids they should play the game to win, but play like a sport. Wrestling fans, don't forget church and Sunday school tomorrow. And remember, play the game to win, but play like a sport. AWF Championship Wrestling has been furnished to this station in exchange for commercial consideration. If your civic or charitable organization would like to bring AWF Wrestling to your town, contact the promoters of AWF Championship Wrestling at P.O. Box 343, Buffalo, South Carolina, 29321, or call 803-427-5113. The show wouldn't last long, and neither would Bab, at least in one place for too long, as stories of Bab's questionable business practices continue to this day. But at the moment, old IWA names like Brute Bernard, Homer O'Dell, Buck Forrest, and Ed Fury come up again, with Chief Jay Eagle declared as the AWF television champion. Other names during this point in time included the likes of Sweetman Jim Tucker, Donnie Gilbert, Josh Winterhawk, and Kenya Condori, who also received a few cups of coffee on Memphis TV. One name that did stumble through, and went on to some notoriety in the state of Texas, would be Freebird Johnny Hayes, a.k.a. John Tatum, who was based out of Chattanooga at the time. And one of the men who had joined Bab on commentary for these shows would be Red Cowan. Rumored to be the biggest wrestling fan in his family, Red was from Walhalla, South Carolina, and helped get his brother Wayne into the business in the 1970s. The younger Cowan would go on to more repute when he changed his name to an old Texas wrestler from the early 1900s, Dutch Mantell. Back on the road heading north on Interstate 77 into Virginia and West Virginia, local Crockett promoter Pete Apostolou would face his own unique standoffs. The area around Virginia Tech University southwest of Roanoke and Lynchburg saw local wrestler promoter Eclipso, real name Mike Weddle, get some regional acclaim through being the original trainer of the now-private Jim Nelson and Rick McCord. Roanoke west to Bluefield, West Virginia is about 100 miles, but once one got there, despite having access to Jim Crockett Promotions Television from stations like WCHS-TV in Charleston and WVVA-TV in Bluefield, where Johnny Weaver maintained control, the real pro wrestling property was in the hands of Jean Madrid. Madrid came to the area in the 1950s after working California 
and became the biggest star in Southern West Virginia wrestling history before taking control of the area. From 1954 to 1977, Oak Hills WOAY-TV aired Saturday Night Wrestling, and John Madrid, along with his working brother, Gene Madrid, dominated the hills and mountains. From Mount Olive south to Princeton, and flanking out on each side, no one dared tread on Madrid's land without a pass. Not even Crockett Promotions, who eventually ran Beckley east to Union, and then upstate Highway 92 to Roncevert, then further north to Franklin, West Virginia, which is about 40 miles west of Harrisonburg, Virginia. Small shows throughout the area would continue in spite of not only Crockett, but the Georgia office and WWF, all trying to descend on the more populous areas of Charleston and Huntington. Since I've talked about everywhere else, it's time to truly bring it home. On today's March 5th, 1983 episode of Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling that, for the time being, has been lost to time, we do know the results. Greg Valentine beat Tom Pritchard. One week away from their title challenge, Ricky Steamboat and Jay Youngblood beat Ben Alexander and Ken Timms. NWA television champion Dick Slater beat former champ Mike Rotundo. Private Jim Nelson and Johnny Weaver beat Masafuchi and Ricky Harris. And the one-man gang beat Joe Lightfoot. Going back to Jim Nelson for a moment, it's a very big night for the recently turned private. He'd get a chance to take out all of his frustrations on his former drill instructor. He'd get a chance to take out all of his frustrations on his former drill instructor, Sergeant Slaughter, when the two faced off at the Charlotte Coliseum. You know, Private Nelson, what is wrong with you, Private Nelson? You know, a lot of things have happened. I don't have to go into that. But now I find out that you're the one that had the hat. You're the one that got the coat. I never suspected it. But Nelson, do you know what you've got yourself into? On March 5th at the Charlotte Coliseum, you're going to find out that when we're at war, you expect everybody that's on your side to be there on your side. You're not on my side anymore, and you and Johnny Weaver are going to find out why. I tell you not, Private Gomer Slaughter. You know, I noticed you frowning out here. You're not angry with me, are you? You know, I don't think I could stand it if I thought you was angry with me. But come Charlotte, you're going to really be hot when it's all over because I'm going to do something that would be worse than breaking your leg or your arm. And that's putting your shoulders down for that one, two, three count. That hurts you more than anything in the world. And Johnny, we will be there to watch my back. I'll let you know how that turned out shortly. As always, after Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling, Worldwide Wrestling was taped. And here's what viewers of that show would see. Welcome to Worldwide Wrestling, the very best in wrestling. John, we've got a study program for him. According to the Clawmaster Jim Zordani's archives, which have been populated by gentlemen such as Al Getz, Mark Easteridge, David Baker, and many others, Greg Valentine topped Joe Lightfoot, Dory Funk Jr. beat Tom Pritchard, Jack and Jerry Briscoe defeated Ricky Harris and Larry Lane, Sergeant Slaughter and Don Kernoodle knocked off Vinnie Valentino and Ron Rossi, and the one-man gang beat Ken Timms. Now, let's take a look around the area and see what this upcoming week will bring. Let's take time for this commercial message about the Mid-Atlantic Wrestling events coming up in your area. We begin one day after the television tapings on Thursday, March 3rd in Sumter, South Carolina at the Exhibition Center. Mike George and Chick Donovan beat the Moondogs, Dory Funk Jr. topped Sweet Brown Sugar, and Jimmy Valiant defeated the one-man gang in a New York street fight. On Friday the 4th, in Charleston, South Carolina at County Hall, Sweet Brown Sugar beat Dory Funk Jr. in a Texas death match, Ricky Steamboat and Jay Youngblood beat Dick Slater in the one-man gang, and Boogie Woogie Man Jimmy Valiant defeated Greg Valentine. On Saturday night, March 5th in Charlotte at the Coliseum, Dory Funk Jr. beat Jack Briscoe, Ricky Steamboat, Jay Youngblood, and Jimmy Valiant defeated the team of Greg Valentine, Terry Funk, and Sir Oliver Humperdinck. And in the main event, Private Jim Nelson knocked off Sergeant Slaughter by disqualification. On Sunday in Savannah, Georgia, at the Civic Center, Greg Valentine beat Mike Rotundo, Jimmy Valiant beat Dick Slater by DQ, and the Briscoe brothers defeated the Funk brothers. Also on Sunday, March 6th, in Toronto, Ontario, a show which reportedly drew 8,200 fans to Maple Leaf Gardens. Private Jim Nelson beat Rudy K by pinfall. Tiger Jeet Singh beat Kurt Von Hess. Big John Studd beat Salvatore Belomo by pinfall. 
and Ricky Steamboat and Jay Youngblood beat Sergeant Slaughter and Don Carnoodle by countout in a two out of three falls match. That main event came off a match from February 20th that was described by someone who wrote into the Wrestling Observer Newsletter at the time as, quote, the greatest tag match ever in Toronto, end quote. On Monday, March 7th in Greenville, South Carolina at Memorial Auditorium, Roddy Piper defeated Dick Slater, and Jimmy Valiant beat the one-man gang, following up that with a beating of Sir Oliver Humperdinck in a lights-out match. The same day in Brantford, Ontario at the Civic Center, TV tapings took place for Maple Leaf Wrestling. During the tapings, all matches were one-on-one affairs. Johnny Weaver beat Leo Burke by DQ, Bobby Bass, and also Kurt Von Hess. Vinny Valentino lost to Leo Burke, Bobby Bass, and Red Dog Lane. Terry Kay beat Private Jim Nelson and Drew with Kurt Von Hess. Private Nelson defeated Rudy Kay. Red Dog Lane also beat Rudy Kay, but was held to a draw by Terry Kay, and Rudy Kay beat Bobby Bass. On March 8th in Columbia, South Carolina at Township Auditorium, Ricky Steamboat and Jay Youngblood beat Gene Anderson and Larry Lane. Jimmy Valiant and Bugsy McGraw beat Dick Slater and the One Man Gang. And Jack Briscoe beat Dory Funk Jr. by disqualification. And on Tuesday, March 9th, in Fishersville, Virginia, at the Augusta Expo, Sweet Brown Sugar beat the Ninja by disqualification, Dick Slater topped Jerry Briscoe, and Jimmy Valiant beat Greg Valentine, but did not take home the United States title. And that takes us back around to the WPCQ Studios in Charlotte, North Carolina, for the tapings that took place on Wednesday, March 9th, 1983, and began airing in local markets beginning the weekend of Saturday, March 12th, 1983. And here's how the WWE Network describes the upcoming episode. Quote, Greg Valentine puts the coveted United States Championship on the line against Roddy Piper. End quote. References used during this podcast are included in the enhanced script available on Patreon. As I mentioned earlier on, I invite you to follow us across our many forms of social media, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Just search at MidAtlanticPod. I would also really appreciate you following the show on YouTube, youtube.com slash MidAtlanticPod. And please consider supporting the show via Patreon. Just search patreon.com slash MidAtlanticPodcast. I also invite you to support all of the programs and content here on the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. We don't condescend, and we are dedicated to preserving and accurately archiving the history of professional wrestling. And I'm proud that this show, produced by me, can be a part of that. I'm Mike Sempervivi. Take us home, Bob DeBartolabin and Uncle Bob Cottle. All right, fans, that's it. And it's been a wild and woolly time. And you hear it there from Paul Jones and Wahoo McDaniel. We'll see you next week. And until then, so long for now. Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling has been furnished to this station for broadcast at this time by Jim Crockett Promotions in exchange for commercial consideration.